Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. May the preaching of the word bless you. I don't actually know what you say after that, but you know, you know, I guess. Yeah, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's, it's all those NIV guys. You can be seated. Um, it's all right. We'll convert him someday. Um, welcome here, guys. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Ben. So glad that you're here. And, um, and like just to, to echo, reiterate what, what Jonathan said. I don't know where he went. Jonathan, right over here. Um, we're so excited about what God has been doing at Life Church. Um, but we also uh, know, because the Bible is super explicit about it, that pride goes before a fall. And, uh, and the, if we really believe that God is the one building his church, there's no room for pride. And um, this is not about us. It's not about our platform. It's not about our brand. It's not about our name. It's not about our kingdom. It's not about us at all. And so, um, yeah, just wanted to reiterate that again. Um, that's really a core conviction of our church. And so if you're a part of this church, you're just part of one expression of the church in Charlotte because there's only one church in Charlotte. And so we, we're praying that God would work and do amazing things above and beyond what we can ask or imagine through his bride. And he's not a polygamist. Okay. So that being said, hopefully you're there in uh, Acts chapter 13. Um, and in March of 2022, uh, astronomers were working with the Hubble telescope and they took a picture and in that picture, they captured an image of the most distant star ever discovered. Now, it's believed to be 50 times bigger than the sun, millions of times brighter. And yet from Earth, it's totally invisible because we don't have powerful enough instruments to see it. It's 12.9 billion light years away. I can't fathom that. I don't think you can either. And yet Hubble was able to find it because the Hubble isn't like our ordinary powerful telescopes. The Hubble uses gravitational lensing in which light-bending gravity, see how I'm reading this, from massive celestial objects functions as a magnifying lens. Now, I don't understand that. I, I took that off of space.com. Um, but basically what it means is that when I look at a photo taken by the Hubble, I can see things that otherwise I wouldn't be able to see. Here's a picture of, I don't know how many galaxies. In that picture, somewhere is the most distant star that we have ever discovered. It's called Arendelle, after Lord of the Rings. It's awesome. Um, the Hubble telescope has discovered 100 billion galaxies, which is mind-blowing. But here's the thing. Hubble's great, but back in December, December 25th of 2021, NASA launched another telescope that's even more powerful than the Hubble. It's called the JW, the James Webb, not Jehovah's Witnesses, the James <laughs> Webb Telescope. And it's the largest telescope in space. It'll be able to view objects that are too old, too distant, too faint for the Hubble to even comprehend. 
Isn't that crazy? And so while the Hubble was able to find 100 million galaxies, they're, they're guessing that the JW is going to find 100 billion more in our universe. You can see the difference in the details. I have a picture side by side between the Hubble and the James Webb. The Hubble is, you know, it's beautiful. It's incredible. You're like, holy cow, I can't believe that's out there. And then you look at the James Webb and all of a sudden it's just like billions more stars out there. It's incredible. Um, I share this with you because when I think about the Hubble telescope and now the James W, I think about magnification. That's what telescopes do. They, they magnify things that we can't see from really far away. Magnify is kind of synonymous with the word glorify. And maybe if you've grown up in church, you've heard this idea that you were put on earth or we were put on earth as a church to, to glorify God. And it's like this cliche that you don't even know what it means, but somehow you're supposed to glorify God in everything you say and think and do, whether you're eating or sleeping or brushing your teeth or going to work, you're supposed to glorify God. That just means you're supposed to magnify God. Now, there are two ways to magnify something. The first way you can magnify something is to get out a microscope or a magnifying glass and make something that's really small look big. That's the first way to magnify something. My grandma, I'll never forget, she's with Jesus now. But every time she needed to reach, she had this big magnifying glass, and she would get it out, and the little, little words on the paper would become big. That, that's the first way to make something small look big. The second way to magnify something, though, is to take something that seems small or that seems distant or that seems really far away and make it look as big as it actually is. And that's what it means to glorify or magnify God. Our role, our purpose, our calling, your calling in life, your calling in this city is to be that kind of telescope for God, to make him look as wonderful and as glorious and as powerful and as big as he actually is. You see, to our world, to our friends and our peers who are far from Jesus, he looks really distant. I mean, he, he looks really small. And insignificant in comparison to all of the problems and all the stuff that we face every single day. He seems really unimpressive to the naked eye. In fact, you look around and you see a lot of disaster, you see a lot of suffering, you see a lot of evil in the world. And, and so one of the big questions on all of our friends and family's mind who don't know Jesus is like, how in the world could he do this? It looks like he's powerless or maybe not good or maybe both. And so our job on this planet is to be a telescope and to make what seems distant and confusing clear and close. This is why we were placed in Charlotte, North Carolina, to magnify the Lord, to show people who he really is so that they can be drawn to him. And the reason I share that with you is because I don't think there's a church in the book of Acts that does a better job of magnifying God than the church at Antioch. I mean, it's just one of the most incredible churches in, in really the history of the church the last 2,000 years. And I think the reason that we're still talking about them 2,000 years later, the reason that they're included in the Acts of the Apostles is the fact that they got what it meant to be telescopes for God. They got what it meant to magnify the Lord. And so we're, we're four and a half years old as, as a church. And God's growing us and it's exciting. And we're thankful and we're prayerful. Um, but it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to, to shift our focus on, man, well, we got 
like systems and organizational stuff and like I, I feel like I'm becoming somewhat of a CEO because I have more staff. No, I hate that. I'm not a details person. I hate it. But I got to get better at it because otherwise staff's not going to know what to do. We're dealing with it. It's hard to lose. It's hard not to lose sight of what is really important. And so as we're going through this book, you know, there's so many things I could preach, uh, and, and I thought about doing a lot of different things. I'm going to save some stuff for later. I'm just going to focus on th these three verses, because I think that these three verses give us an introduction into why these people were so effective at being telescopes for God, being magnifying uh, lenses, so to speak, for Jesus. And I want us to follow in their footsteps. You know, we're still praying. We're still dreaming. We're still developing. We're still growing. There's a lot of growing pains in all of this. We're still becoming who we're going to be. Our story has not been written yet. And so as we're doing that, I want to call us to follow in their footsteps. And there are three main things that I want to show you. And um, I've got a timer in the back. This is a new feature. And this is going to be so helpful for me. And it's going to be so helpful for you. Don't look at it, guys. How dare you? I'm just joking. I wanted you to look at it. Okay, so... Three main things I want to show you. First, the sovereign power of God is magnified by our unity in the church. Now, we've been talking about this a ton for the last couple of weeks, but it's so important. I want to mention it again. Look back at verse 13. Now, they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now, let's stop there because that is one of the wildest lists of people you will ever see. Under the same roof, in the same room, under the same banner. Um, this is a wild list because Antioch is divided by ethnic tribalism. As Jonathan mentioned I, in two weeks ago or so, you know, there were five major cultures in Antioch. And uh, there was so much hostility, you might remember that they had to build walls inside the city from, for, so that the, the tribes and the ethnic groups wouldn't war against each other. And now all of a sudden you've got this room full of people from lots of different backgrounds. People that shouldn't like each other at all. Um, they're all unified under the banner of Jesus. Barnabas, for example. Barnabas... Um, we saw in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas was a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And at the same time, Saul was trying to shut down the church at Jerusalem. And so Barnabas is selling all of his possessions so that he can advance the gospel, right? He, in Acts 8, Saul is literally kicking down doors and dragging Barnabas' friends and family to prison. And so Barnabas is sacrificing for Christ and Saul is Killing Christians, stoning Christians for what he viewed as uh, his religious zeal. Now they're both in the same room, on the same team, under the same banner. That's surprising. That, that shows that there's something a little bit bigger than all of the stuff that they had been living for um, up until that point. But that wasn't it. Then you have Simeon from North Africa, Lucius from Syria. And then Menaean, who's the childhood friend of Herod. He grew up with Herod. This is wild. Herod's the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. Herod's the guy who played a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. This guy's like a childhood buddy of Herod the Tetrarch. And now they're all, again, in the same room under the same banner. This group of leaders, and this is what I want you to see, 
this group of leaders revealed something about the power of God that nothing else could. He's not just powerful enough to reconcile us to God. He's powerful enough to reconcile us to each other as well. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's manifested, it's magnified through unity. Now, guys, we've talked again a lot about this in the last couple of weeks. I'm just going to highlight it. I, I, I sense, like, I sense boredom when I talk about unity. And that's because you don't know how many enemies you have in your heart. You know, I just sense that you feel like you've already moved on. You haven't moved on, okay? So I need you to listen and see yourself in this and see how God wants to be magnified in and through you because you no longer have any enemies in your heart, okay? So I, I want you to think about the miracle of reconciliation. Did you know that every other religion in the world can do miracles? Not, not empowered by the Holy Spirit, but empowered by evil spirits. Did you know that? If you don't think that we live in a mystical, metaphysical, supernatural world, I got some books for you to read. Um, did you know that every other religion in the world can do signs and wonders? Did you know that when Moses went to Egypt to liberate his people, that the magicians could do every single thing he did? Does that shock you? Does that surprise you? You're, you're looking for a miracle, right? Do you know what? Every religion can do any sign, miracle, wonder they want to, but you know what they can't do? They can't create peace. They can't reconcile enemies and turn them into friends. Can't do it. The miracle of reconciliation is greater than a miracle of parting waters or turning a staff into a snake or whatever else you could imagine. It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we kill hostility and create peace. Do you have hostility in your heart? Just think, is there someone, anyone, maybe it's like a, a general person, a group of people, that you would have a really hard time praying, God, please bless those people. Help them prosper today. Help them succeed in their efforts today. Anybody at all? Listen to this, Ephesians 2. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. Our calling as a church is to magnify the Lord by demonstrating that he has a stronger hold on us than our past. He has a stronger hold on us than our loyalties. I mean, we all came in with different groups. We came in with different identities. We came in with different traditions. We came in with different parties and different backgrounds and whatever. And so our unity demonstrates that those things aren't less important, okay? Politics is important. It really is. I think that there's becoming a, an increasingly wide gap between the vision for flourishing. And that's worth talking about, okay? But guess who's more powerful than politics? You know, I just, I just went, this is a lighthearted thing, okay? Because you're so nervous as soon as I start talking about politics. I mean, goodness, you can cut it. You can cut it with a knife. Okay, and I know a lot of you, actually some, many of you work in politics. And so I am not saying that what you do is not important. It is so important. Politics is so important, okay? 
and I'll be happy to tell you who I voted for if you want to get coffee. I'm not going to say it from up here, though, because that's conflict of interest. All right. Um, but let's just think about, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to go there. Okay, I'm not going to go there. All right. I feel, like, I feel like I should move on. I should move on. All right. Um, I love you. I do. I do. I love you. And, um, yeah, I just want you to think about the way, how do you interact with people when you disagree with them? I think that's, that's what unity is about. It's not about uniformity. How do you, how do you respond when people disagree with you? You know, we got some people who are really passionate about guns in the room, and we got some people who are really passionate against guns right now. We're being protected by some people with guns right now. We're thankful for them. Um, the people who are not fun, fans of that are really mad at me right now. Um, so, so how do you respond when, you, when you're disagreeing with each other at a party, right? Um, I don't need to demonstrate how hard this is in real time because you know the issues and you know how polarized our country is. You know how black and white everything is. And if you believe this, you're a good guy. And if you don't, you're evil. Um, there isn't any place for that in the body of Christ. And when we act like that, and when we respond to each other like that, we don't show him as powerful. We say, yeah, Jesus, you're powerful. You're powerful enough to make peace, but I got this little T right here, and I, you know, I can't let go of that. Our calling as a church is to magnify the Lord by demonstrating he's, he has a greater weight in our hearts than our points of origin. You know, and, and this is again going to step on some toes. Um, Rome was squashing people under its thumb. The Pax Romana was brought about through the sword, okay? The Roman peace was peace earned by blood of just like dominating the known world. Empire, marching on, conquest, and all of the stuff that goes with it. Do you know what you never hear about in the New Testament? You never hear the Jewish people who were crushed by Rome and the barbarians who were crushed by Rome and the Syrians who were crushed by Rome and the Africans who were crushed by Rome, you never hear a single instance in the New Testament of them lording their victimhood over Rome. All you ever see is the power of reconciliation. I mean, it's wild. The gospel is the power. And the only way the gospel is the power is if we actually believe it and live in it. And if we say, listen, my loyalty is strong. My, my tribe is strong. My family name is strong. My tradition is strong. My background is strong. But Jesus transcends all of it. And so then we come in together and we disagree on things like guns. And we disagree on policy. And we disagree on maybe how things should be played out. And you can vote however you want, and that is your God-given right, and you should do that. And we disagree on these things, but we're unified by someone who is bigger than all of it. That's really hard. He has more influence in our peer group than our prejudices. 
He has more influence in our peer group than our politics. Can you honestly say that, or is there hostility in your heart? If you want to make God look as big and as strong and as powerful as he really is, if I want that, we need to start by showing our divided world that we can welcome in and worship with and pray for and cheer on and build up people who disagree with us. Church of Antioch got this. We need to get it as well. The sovereign power of God is magnified by our unity in the church. Second, the unrivaled glory of God is magnified by our worship in the church. Look back at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now stop here for a minute because, again, this is very important. Did you know that we're all worshipers? I, I think that you, you know that. We're not brains on a stick. We're not thinking things. We're feeling things. We're worshiping beings. We go where our heart goes. We go where our love goes. Whatever we lo Love is like our gravity. It doesn't matter how much willpower you have. You're going to go wherever your love goes. And so if we see something great, we're going to worship that thing. This is why guys wear grown men's names on the back of jerseys. That's a weird concept. I do it too, okay? <laughs> I mean, like we see greatness and we're like, I got to put that guy's name on my back. Like I, I, I have seen greatness. I'm celebrating his greatness. We praise what we see is beautiful. Did you know that you never have to convince a husband or a wife to praise their spouse for their beauty? It's just, it's, it's the natural overflow. Like, wow, my, my wife is amazing. I just got to tell you. She is. She is. I married way, way up. You all know that. I don't have to tell you that. I don't have to tell you that. It's obvious. Um, we celebrate whatever we think is awesome. We just do it. You can't help it. You read a good book, you got to tell someone about it. You hear a great song, you got to share it. You watch an incredible comeback, an incredible game, you're, you're texting, you're tweeting, you're Facebooking, whatever, that you, you celebrate the greatness that you witness in your life. Now listen to this. This is the point I want you to see. The more glorious, the, the, the greater that something or someone is, the greater our response and worship should be. It's about to get uncomfortable. If, it, if the first point wasn't uncomfortable enough. For example, yesterday, I got to witness three different levels of greatness when it came to soccer. Okay, so I have a nine-year-old son. Went to his uh, club game, Charlotte Champions League. That's level one. Um, and then I got to uh, go to the home opener last night for Charlotte FC. Anybody, anybody else there? Yeah, let's go. First of many losses, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> So I guess if any of them ever started coming here, we'll talk nice about them. But, you know, until then, it is what it is. Um, so that's level two. And then level three is, uh, of course, the mini games I get to watch on TV. The English Premier League. That's right. My brothers and my sisters on the front. Let me just tell you, the levels of greatness between the three different games were staggering. Um, as I'm sure you know, 
And uh, this is what's really interesting to me as I was thinking about the levels of glory, okay? The levels of significance, the levels of, of weight. Um, you can actually see the levels of greatness by observing the levels of praise in the stands. You can see it. All of us parents love our boys. We're so proud of our boys. So proud of you. Um, Nicholas actually scored the game winner in one of his games. It was amazing. It was glorious. Everyone's cheering and clapping and celebrating. Um, but for the most part, you could sum up our praise during the game with a picture like this. That was us yesterday, in the cold and the rain. It's wonderful. Some nice moments here and there, but they're only nine. I mean, they're nine. They're, you know, most of them still haven't figured out how to throw the ball in yet. And Nicholas has. I'm not talking about Nicholas, but I mean, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times the ref had to call a foul throw just because they don't know how to throw the ball in. This is the Charlotte Champions League. You know, you nine, you ten. Um, so listen, if you don't know any of the kids on the field at a U10 Champions League game, you're not interested and you're just going to move right on. You can tell that by the fans on the sidelines. Then I went to the Charlotte FC game last night, 69,000 fans, amazing crowd, amazing atmosphere, home opener, and um, totally let down. But there was a ton of energy uh, in the stands, especially in the fan section. They sang, they danced, they cheered the whole game. It looked something like this. I have another picture. But if you know anything about soccer, you know that the MLS is probably the 10th best league in the world. Maybe we're being generous. Um, and so while it's definitely better than nine-year-olds, um, compared to the rest of the world, it is not good. And so it's really hard to fill the stands week in and week out. I mean, home opener, of course, 69,000 is wonderful. Um, but it is even harder to get 69,000 fans to sing and praise and worship the team on the field. Did you know that the word worship literally means minister to? Minister to? Um, it's really hard to get 69,000 fans to minister to people. I mean, it's really fun to be there, but you know as you're watching it, like, this isn't that good. The levels are higher. But you can see by looking at the praise and worship of the average attender. I'm not talking about the fan section, but the stakes aren't that high. The team isn't that impressive. Okay, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse now. Some of you are so offended, I can feel it. I didn't know you cared so much. Let me show you real soccer. There's a championship game this afternoon. Okay, um, but then you go to Europe. You go to Europe, which someday I will. <laughs> All I have is TV. Um, and you watch the Premier League in England, and everything's different. I have a picture of the greatest club in the world. Every single person, big and small, old and young, male and female, totally enthralled with the players on the pitch. You can't even see it, but every single one of their hands, every single one of their arms are outstretched. They are ministering to the people on the field, the people that have captured their imaginations, the people that have wowed them with their greatness and their glory, the people that are doing these incredible feats of kicking a ball. And they're ministering to them, worshiping them, celebrating them, 
praising them for 90 straight minutes. They don't stop. They're watching the greatest players in the world and the levels of their praise reflects it. The greater the person, the greater the praise. The greater the victory, the greater the celebration. The greater the glory, the greater the worship. Here's the thing I want you to see. God is above every person. God is above every throne. God is above every king or little g God in the entire universe. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the creator and sustainer of all that is. His victory over sin and death was the greatest victory in the history of the world. We sing about it every week. We're just rehearsing for heaven, by the way. The story of your redemption is the greatest story ever told. And the promise of resurrection is the greatest promise ever made. And the presence of his spirit is the greatest gift that was ever given. And the hope of his glory is the greatest hope that you could ever have. The stakes were never higher. The task was never harder. And the outcome was never sure. And our calling as his people is to minister to him. Our calling as his people is to see him and to celebrate him for who he is and for what he's done. That's our calling. So that we can magnify him, reveal him to people who don't know what he looks like. To make him look as glorious as he really is. David put it like this in Psalm 34. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us praise his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. That's a great victory. And the promise is if he hasn't already delivered you from your fears, he will one day. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How do we magnify the Lord? How do we make him look as glorious and as great as he actually is? By praising him. We minister to him in worship. 1 Chronicles 16 Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. No one else is more worthy than him. Most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord. Minister to the Lord. Worship the Lord. All you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Those are commands. They are not optional for the people of God. And I am jealous for that in this church. I will not settle for anything less in this church. He is worthy. I think 
one of the greatest tragedies in the American church, and there are so many of them. It's the fact that more often than not, the level of our worship does not reflect the level of Christ's worthiness. The greatness of our praise doesn't match the greatness of the person. I mean, forget the Premier League, forget the MLS, forget the nine-year-old Champions League. Sometimes it feels like you're in a morgue, doesn't it? They call us the frozen chosen for a reason, you know. Let me ask you something. If the only picture of God the people around you will ever see is the picture of your face as you pray to him and as you sing to him and as you listen to his word preached, what kind of God will they see? A boring God? A lame God? An invisible God? A God that doesn't actually know you that you don't really know either? A God that doesn't transcend your personality? A God that doesn't get beyond whether or not you're an extrovert, a God that doesn't get above the cares of this world and call you to worship him in his holiness, what kind of God do they see? Now listen, let me stop you here because I know you're protesting in your heart and I get the fact that some of you aren't extroverts um, and I get the fact that some of you aren't expressive and I know that some of you are really mindful about not wanting to be excessive and I appreciate that and I get that and I used to think the exact same things that you do right now five or six years ago. And I can say that you're wrong because I was wrong five or six years ago too. I'm gonna encourage you right now in the same way that I was encouraged and challenged. What I've learned as I've studied worship throughout the scriptures is that worship has nothing to do with you, it has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with God. It's not about introverts and extroverts. It is about the excellencies of his glory and the extravagance of his grace. And we've been conditioned to think that worship is an expression of ourselves. Who told us that? That's America. That's radical individualism. Who told us that worship is about us? Who told us that worship is about how we feel? Sometimes you might look at me and you might think, man, Ben just walks in a flame. I just walk in and, and I'm ready to go. I just walk in and my heart is like lit on fire 24-7 all day, every day. I don't struggle with anything. I don't have any cares in the world. Man, Ben just goes after it. You think it's what I feel. It has nothing to do with me. I'm here to worship my king. And my king is worthy. And my king is bigger than how I feel. And my king is bigger than what I want to do in the moment. My king is bigger than my fear of what you think of me. This is the beauty of worship, though. And I'm about to get to this in a minute about obedience, but God never tells us to do something that won't lead to our joy and our blessing. 
And so when God tells us to worship him like this, he knows that it's going to do something in our hearts. Did you know that every Sunday if you come in and worship like you're in a morgue, that does something to your heart? It tells your heart that he's not real, that he's not powerful, that he's not good, that he's not beautiful, that he's not glorious. And in your stoicism, you are telling yourself lies about who God is. But when you obey and you give him the worship that he is worthy of, something happens in your heart. I'm telling you guys, there are so many Sundays I come in and I'm cold. There are so many Sundays I come in and I'm like, I don't want to be here, but I have to be here because it's my job. There are so many times I come in weighed down by the burden of sin. There are so many times I come in here confused, troubled, discouraged, but I worship him in his holy place with my brothers and my sisters, and he reminds me again that he's bigger and he's better and he's more glorious than anything I've ever experienced, right? And so when, when David said, come and magnify the Lord with me, come and minister to the Lord with me, it's not just a command to give God what he's worthy of. It's an invitation to receive his presence in a vital way, in a way to transform every aspect of our life. Every command in the Bible is an invitation into joy. Every single one of them. And I'm jealous for that in this church, not just because of God's sake, but because of you. I want your heart to know the love of Jesus. I don't want it to be a figment of your imagination. I don't want it to be words on a page. I want you to know it and feel it. This is not for the psalmist alone. This is not for the apostle Paul alone. This is for you today. That you can know God. The church at Antioch, oh man, they, they worshiped the Lord because he had done so many great things in their midst. They fasted so that they could get more of it. And as a result, the world around them saw his glory. May that be true in this church. We, we love theology. We love the word. We have, I just love reading books. I love words on a page. I do not at the expense of worship, spirit and truth. Third, the matchless goodness of God is magnified by the obedience of his church. Look back at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that's not a coincidence. Things happen while we worship. Things happen while we fast. We're going to be talking about fasting and praying a lot in the next couple of months. Uh, the Holy Spirit said, that's really cool too. Wow, you should circle that. The Holy Spirit said this to them while they were worshiping and fasting. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying some more because they were confused, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now this might not seem like that big of a deal to you, but I just want you to try to put yourself in their shoes here for a minute because they've been worshiping the Lord. They've been seeking his face in prayer and fasting. They want his presence. They want his guidance. They want his direction. And the words are set apart for me, your most generous giver and your most effective teacher because I'm taking them away from you. <laughs> Wait, what? That's why they had to pray and fast again because they're like, let's make sure, Okay. <laughs> Nothing is in it for them. And yet they obey. They pray and fast. They say this is clearly what God wants. All right, you can have our leader. You can have Saul. You can have our teacher. You can have our theologian. All right, you can have Barnabas. He's basically been funding this whole thing from day one. 
you can have them. And this is what I want you to see. It's when we obey like that, it's in the moments when it doesn't make sense. It's in the moments when we don't have all the answers. When we joyfully, when we gladly, when we thankfully, gratefully, with, with, with honest and humble hearts, um, obey God, we prove to the world that he's good and that he can be trusted with our lives. Um, the matchless goodness of God is magnified by the obedience of his people. Guys, unbelievers are convinced, and I don't have to tell you this, but I'm, I'm going to because I'm going to build a little bit of an argument, but unbelievers are convinced that God is a cosmic killjoy. I think a lot of believers are convinced of that too. That's why we don't obey him. Uh, I, I think that we, we oftentimes think that the Bible is God's way of ruining our fun, ruining our lives even. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. As the psalmist put it, we know that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We know that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We know that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Guys, he doesn't tell us what he can do to ruin our lives. He tells us what to do so that he can prosper our lives. And I want you to believe this. It's true. Just like when I tell my kids not to run out in the middle of the road or not to eat a carton of ice cream for breakfast or when I tell them not to play video games all day. It's because I know that if they run out into the middle of the road, especially in uptown, they're going to get hit. If they eat a carton of ice cream, they're going to get sick. If they play video games all day, they're going to waste their lives and their brains are going to turn into mush like some of you. <laughs> my prohibitions for my kids are for their blessing, okay? They're for their prosperity. They're for their good. They flow out of my deep love for them. Good dads give their kids direction and instruction, and even when that direction doesn't make sense, if the kids obey it, it will always lead to their good. I, I, I'm trying to be a good dad, but I'm, I'm no... I'm, I, I'm just me. I make mistakes all the time. Some of you had, had poor dads, and so maybe this imagery doesn't help you. And some of you have taken your experience of your father, and you've put that on your heavenly father, and you've said, well, if, if this dad was like that, then this dad must be like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's good. He's pure. He's trustworthy. He's full of loyal love and faithful kindness. And if he gives you a command, it's because he wants your good as well. Um, this is so important for you to grasp. Usually when we think of God, well, let me just ask you, I mean, just think about it. What's the first image that comes into your mind when you think about God? How do you picture him when you're praying? If the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God as a king on a throne, and he absolutely is the king on the throne. I just, I just spent some time on that. But if the first image that comes into your mind when you think of God as a king on a throne, you're gonna miss it. He is a king on a throne. But even more importantly, and even more foundational than that, he is a father in heaven. Now, how do I know that? I know that because before he created the world and had anyone to rule, 
before he created any of the angelic beings or any of the, the, the lowercase g, spiritual being, gods, whatever, the gods of the nations, before he created any of those people, before he created any of the animals, before he created that universe that we just saw pictures of, before he had anything to rule, he was a father delighting in his son, Jesus Christ, in perfect harmony in perfect love, showering him with blessings through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 tells us that. I'm not making this up. Before he was the sovereign king, he was the father. He was not eternally ruling. He will rule for all eternity, but in eternity past, he was not ruling. He was loving his son. That's significant. That's important, because that means at his core, eternally, foundationally, he's father. Implications of this are massive. If God is first and foremost king and not father, then our obedience wouldn't be based on his love, wouldn't be based on his kindness, wouldn't be based on his goodness, it would be based on his authority. I don't wanna get punished. If God is first and foremost king, that is our number one concern. I don't want the, the shoe to drop, so to speak. How many of you have ever felt like that? If God is first and foremost creator, then at our core, <laughs> we are fundamentally his creatures just carrying out his will. If he's first and foremost ruler, then at our core, we are fundamentally subjects obeying his command. But if first and foremost, he is our father, then at our core, we are fundamentally his sons and his daughters delighting in his goodness and love. That changes everything, guys. The church at Antioch had no idea why God was taking their best leaders from them, but they knew who God was. And they trusted him. They knew that he was good. They knew that he could be obeyed and that obedience would lead to their eternal blessing. And so they sent Paul, they sent Barnabas on their way. Guys, they had no idea at the time. But their obedience ended up leading to the greatest missionary in the history of the church, missionary journey in the history of the church. And because of their sending out, you and I are here today. In fact, without their obedience, we don't exist. Check this out, this quote from John Piper. This moment of obedience resulted in a missionary movement that would make Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries and would yield billions of adherence to the Christian religion today with a Christian witness in virtually every country of the world. 13 out of the 29 books of the New Testament were the result of the ministry that was launched in this moment of obedience. And so I think it's fair to say that God was pleased to make worship and prayer and fasting the launching pad for a mission that would change the course of world history. Guys, they had no idea what his plan was. They didn't know what it would entail, but they knew him. They didn't know the why, they didn't know the what, they didn't know the how, but they knew the who and they trusted him. And with joy and with gladness and with thanksgiving, they submitted to him. How many of you are having a, something in your life right now where you're really struggling to trust the Lord? And, and it seems like a difficult command. And it seems like if you obey his command, that's going to lead you away from your joy. 
Like it's going to be a dramatic shift in your life. Maybe it's a, a, a partner that you've been dating that you know you're not supposed to be dating because they're leading you away from him. And, and you've been resisting that because you can't comprehend how that could lead to your good. You can trust him. He's your father. He would never give you a command if it wasn't for your good. I don't know what your situation is, but every single one of us have commands that are really hard to obey. Every single one of us. Every single one of us have commands that feel like we're walking into a cave with no light and we're just fumbling around looking for hope. We're looking for answers, we're looking for a reason, or we're looking for an explanation. And let me just promise you that the step of faith is the step of obedience. And God honors our obedience by showing up in the darkness and turning the lights on and showing us what he's doing. But you don't get it. You don't get the light without the step of obedience. I don't know what it is in your life, but his reward and his blessing and his glory are waiting for you and they are the fruit of obedience. How can you know that God is trustworthy? And I'm gonna close with this. Because I know some of you don't believe me. Maybe you want to believe me, but you're not sure. I'm just a guy on a stage. Um, how do you know that you can trust God? That his commands are for your good. That if you obey them, you won't be put to shame. You'll never be on the wrong side of history if you obey God. How can you know that? He's actually full of kindness and goodness and love. He knew you would, would ask that. He's not, he's not afraid of that question. He loves that question. It gives him another reason to tell you again that he demonstrated his love, that he proved his love by sending his only son to become a human man, to become obedient, even obedient to the point of death on a cross, to die in your place for your sins, to take your shame, to take your guilt, to take your condemnation, so that he could make you his son, so that he could make you his daughter. And when we look at the life of Christ, what we see is that Christ's obedience actually led to his blessing. Christ's death on the cross, even though he, he asked the Lord to take away the cup, his death on the cross produced his glory, led to his exaltation, earned for him the name that is above all names. It's only because of his death. Reward is always on the other side of obedience. Jesus shows us that. He is the forerunner of our faith, and so I'll leave you with this. He has never asked you to do anything for him that the Father didn't ask him to do. And he has proven that his Father can be trusted. Because even though he was crushed, and even though he was killed, he did not stay in the grave, amen? He was raised on the third day. He was brought to life. He, and right now he is exalted at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So we magnify the goodness of God when we follow in the footsteps of Christ and obey his commandments. Guys, would you stand with me?